to go from two minutes meditation to 10 minutes meditation. 19 and a half years. But God loves him a little trier. God loves him a little fucking trier. And my God is cool, John. My God is up there actually laughing his bearded ass off at me down there in my bedroom doing my shitty prayer meditation. He's laughing his ass off going, look at that little English fuck down there. Look at that little English wanker doing his shitty prayer meditation. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas. We are so glad you have joined us. That was the voice of Mr. Darren P. That you heard at the beginning of this here episode number 332 of Sober Speak. And you are going to hear so much more from Darren in just a moment. But first things first, this here episode is made possible by Mallory, Kurt, Audrey, Adrian, Mary Lynn, Laura, Timothy, and Philip. What may you ask? Did Mallory, Kurt, Audrey, Adrian, Mary Lynn, Laura, Timothy, and Philip do? Well, they went to our humble little website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Mallory, Kurt. Audrey, Adrian, Marilyn, Laura, Timothy, and Philip. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. As always, it's coming out to Ewan's, but we are going to let everybody else listen on in. And we appreciate you guys uh, sponsoring the program this week. If you are out there and you are feeling a little bit mm, restless irritable and discontent. We are here to help you get on the beam, hopefully back on course to happy, joyous, and free. And we're so glad that you have joined us today. All right. So, oh gosh, can you hear that? 
I need to shut down my phone when these things happen, right? Oh, God, I'm sorry. Okay, so either I completely start over or I just let you hear ringing for a second and then uh, I start the uh, episode and I'm just going to let you hear ringing if you can indeed hear that in the background. I'm not sure. Anyway, this one is uh, from Darren P. This episode, we're featuring Darren P. And the episode is called God Loves a Little Trier. Oh, you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, Darren is from beautiful Santa Barbara, California, but originally from Manchester, England, uh, the red side of Manchester, England. And Darren will uh, explain that during his story. This one, folks, is marked as explicit, as you could tell from the opening clip there. If you are offended by, uh, what do they call it nowadays, cursing, street language, uh, foul language, whatever you want to call it. But if you were offended by that, you may want to move on to another one of our 331 other uh, episodes. Uh, so just go ahead and p- pause your device now uh, and uh, and uh, go to one of our other uh, episodes. But anyway, here are some of my favorite quotes from during, Darren during the episode. He says, alcoholism stole my happy gene. <laughs> I love that. He says his weekends were longer than his week. Uh, Darren discusses what he calls frightful drinking, a la Dr. Bob. Uh, He also talks about what it means to have a full heart and how he began to work the guaranteed version of AA rather than his own method. And as always, folks, We'll have plenty of listener feedback. Without further ado, I present to you Mr. Darren P. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today we're sitting here with Mr. Darren P. And I know very little about Darren P. And we are about to find out more about Darren together uh, as a group. So Darren, first things first, why don't you go ahead introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you would like to, and then tell people where you live in this great world of ours. Well, thank you, John. Hi, everybody. My name is Darren, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is 4-24-04. I am currently living in beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Although I know I don't sound like a Santa Barbara chap, I'm originally from uh, Manchester, England. You're from Manchester, England. So is Manchester United your team? It sure is, my man. I am on the red side of the city. (laughs) Okay, what does that mean when you're on the red side of the city? Explain to us Americans. When you grow up in Manchester, you're either a blue or a red. Blue is Manchester City. Red is Manchester United, United. and the, the, the town is hotly divided. <laughs> I bet. And so, were you ever able to go to one of the actual games between the two? Oh, I was a season ticket holder for many years. Oh, That's wow. the biggest thing I miss about being in the States is not going to the live game in the English Premiership. Oh, yeah, and I've heard it's just fantastic. Uh, and so would you, do you ever watch a uh, Ted Lasso by any chance? 
I did. It took a while. Everybody was telling me to watch it. Finally, I watched it. I'm like, oh my God, this is brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's good. And I noticed you have a painting behind you. Is that to kind of uh, uh, signify, I guess that's a painting. It looks like a painting. Is that to kind of signify the, the, the ocean out there in Santa Barbara? That's right. I live very close to the beach. I'm very fortunate. So my home has a bit of a beach vibe to it. Ah, oh, very cool. Very cool. Okay. So we, I was referred to you, uh, or we referred to each other, however you want to put that by Mr. Jason J up in the Portland area. How did, how do you guys know each other from out on the circuit or what? Yeah, we've, um, been able to, uh, talk around the country uh, a couple of times here and there because he's up in oregon mm -hmm. uh i'm down here in california but i think we've known each other probably 10 years now uh over over the time we've gotten to know each other pretty well uh yeah we both speak a lot around mostly around la and orange counties where most of the circuit speaking is done uh, and then at some point you might get to speak at other state state conventions and things like that. And I've spoken up in Oregon a couple of times and he's been down here and we've spoken in different parts of the country together. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of fabulous how it all comes together like that. So we just recently had a couple of episodes of him on. In fact, if you ever want to go hear a story on a podcast versus live, you can't. I'm assuming you're not really a big podcast guy. Am I right? Uh, not too much. Yeah. Not too much. The reason I asked is because I was asking which podcast you listen to is just not like. Uh, so, is there, have you ever been on a podcast before? Uh, I have. I have a, a year or two ago. Yeah, but only the once. Good. All right. So let's go ahead then and kind of get into your story. Obviously, you grew up in Manchester, England, right? So, and and you've made it to Santa Barbara. California somehow, and my guess is this is a little bit of a story between there and how you got there. So take me through kind of, I, I don't know, your your general, what it was like, what you were like, what happened and what you're like now. And so, you know, where do you usually start? I usually start for a minute or two at the end of the story um, because going into, I, I did make it to to California and and I became a, a I was a pretty bad drunk and I was cornered uh, by alcoholism. Um, I was in a living in a shitty room in a crappy house on the west side of town. I could not stay sober, and I was very very reluctant to go to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had such a preconceived notion of how miserable Alcoholics Anonymous is. I mean, have you ever seen it on the telly, John? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is depicted so. The, is it, the usual scene is there's uh, fourteen bald, fat, ugly, miserable men in a smoky-filled room. <clears throat> you know, one of them might be one week sober, and they're all clapping and crying. And it just—I'm thinking, oh my god, how depressing is that? I never want to end up there. And basically, everyone towards the end of me drinking is telling me to go to Alcott's Anonymous, the, the doctors. <laughs> psychiatrists, family and friends who hadn't spoken to me in over a year back then were telling me to go to AA. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I'm already suicidally depressed. Why on earth would I now want to go to AA? It makes no sense. And, you know, so I was, I was cornered and I was, I, would, I was maudlin drunk one night yet again. It was midnight 
all the roommates that I had who wanted nothing to do with me. They were all downtown partying again, having excluded me, of course. And, and I finally picked up the yellow pages. I don't know if you remember those things. I picked up the yellow pages and it took me a while to find the number for Alcott's Anonymous because I was that drunk. It's like in the beginning of the book, you know, found that, called the number. And a lady, a very nice old lady, I'll be forever in her debt. You know, she listened to me as I told her I'm suicidal. She listened to me as I told her, yes, I might drink too much, but so would you if what's happened to me had happened to you. And on and on I went. And finally she said, hey, well, have you ever been to a meeting? I said, no. <clears throat> she said, there's a meeting tomorrow night down the street from you. She made it sound so special. I didn't know there was 200 meetings a week here in Santa Barbara. And so the next day, I came to the next day and I remembered our conversation and I was quicksand was stretched all around me. I'm just, uh, I'm just cornered by alcoholism. So I can't say I didn't uh, take a drink because at this stage of my drinking, John, if, 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 if I'm going to leave my bedroom, let alone my house, I have to have a bit of cheeky vodka in me, you know what I mean? <laughs> Especially if I'm doing if I'm doing something really weird, like interacting with another human, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to need some vodka in me. So I remember I showered for the first time in months and I gelled my hair all sexy like I used to be able to back then. And I went wandering into this Alcott's Anonymous meeting for the first time and it, and it astounded me because it looked nothing like I'd seen on the TV. It was in a very well-lit, bright room. It was a men's stag. There were about 80 men in this meeting hall, and they were all very happy to see each other, very kind towards each other. Someone had gotten a promotion at work, and they were all stoked on that. Someone else had gotten engaged. Now, I'm sat down away from the... I don't want to catch anything from these happy fucks, you know what I mean? So I'm sat down, minding my own business, watching, observing what's going on. And then the meeting was about to start and I'm just enthralled with what's going on. The secretary starts shuffling some papers, sits down, 80 men sit in this huge circle. And as the meeting begins, everybody shuts up, gets off their phone, respects the start of the meeting. And as the meeting starts, I think this is a good time to open my jacket pocket. I pull out a big bottle of vodka and start drinking right there in the meeting. And the guy next to me is like, holy shit wait a minute, this guy's drinking vodka in the meeting. And I was looking around, I was astounded that nobody else was drinking. I'm like, wait a minute, isn't this Alcox Anonymous? Don't you have a drinking problem? It made no sense to me because I, I knew nothing about recovery. I knew nothing about AA except the, the horrible images I'd seen on the TV back in England. And I was just enthralled with what was going on. I stayed drunk for a year in the rooms of Alcott's Anonymous. I got quite the reputation here in Santa Barbara back then, <laughs> almost 20 years ago. They would say, oh my God, watch, here's that crazy Englishman. He's going to pull out a bottle of vodka in a minute. <laughs> and I did. So that was my introduction uh, to Alcott's Anonymous. So that was your introduction. So take me back kind of like, you know, coming up to there and then, at, you know, maybe mm -hmm. towards we get toward the end of this, we'll kind of go toward uh, the, you know, what, what had life been like after you got into Alcoholics Anonymous? So take me through the steps of getting there. So I grew up in Manchester, England. I started drinking at a regular age, which is 13. 
13 or 14 you know i thought you might fall off your chair there 13 that's ridiculous like not in alcoholics anonymous it's not. right it's like oh nowadays it's like 13 you boring bastard i was drinking when i was eight what i realized you can't outdo anybody right in the rooms of alcoholics anonymous, so don't don't even try it, interestingly enough there's this one f funny woman speaker and she gives a great talk but her whole pitch surrounds the fact that she was drunk in her addicted mother's womb in the womb oh. it's like fuck okay teresa you win you win you can't outdo that story so i'm drinking at a normal age 13 14 drinking a stolen bottle of cider in the park with my friends you know trying to act tough just normal stuff in the uk and um i happen to i'm one of those people that i had a good time i had a good time drinking through my teenage years into high school you know the wheels didn't come off until my mid to late 20s and so i went off to university uh, uh i had a great time and then i and then i was supposed to become a boring school teacher but luckily my brother saved the day my older brother six years my senior was already a businessman and he had an idea to to form another business so i became an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur from leaving university at 22 until the age of 29 and it was between the ages of 22 and 29 where alcoholism started to take its mighty grip on me. So 20 to 29, alcoholism starting to... So how did the business go? Were you operating the business that entire time? Yeah, the business was a tremendous success early on. Um, for, the, for the first three, four, five years, I was the... Um, um, I was the marketing director. My brother was the, you know, the the businessman. He's just a brilliant businessman, and and we were we were renting out vehicles to people involved in non-fault road traffic accidents, and we were dealing with their claims. And every time a check came in, we would buy another vehicle to rent out, and we eventually got some offices and got a couple of secretaries, and the business grew tremendously. Within three or four years, we had outstanding invoices of about you know, a million pounds, which then was about $2 million. You know, I had arrived, so to speak, and things were going great. I, I have Miss Manchester on my arm and I am driving a sports car. <laughs> the, the the banker watched with amused skepticism and whirled some fat checks in and out of his account. But in my mid to late 20s, about, about 25, 26 is when alcoholism came in. And it doesn't come in the form of me waking up you know, living in a tent down by the river or, or having a big bushy beard as I picture an alcoholic, you know, like the, the, the guy on the off ramp begging for change is the alcoholic. Alcoholism is, is subtle and progressive and it comes in the form of massive amounts of anxiety and it comes in the form of massive amounts of depression and it comes in the form of this spiritual illness, which I didn't have a clue what the fuck's going on. You know, I used to be confident, fun, and funny and outgoing, and alcoholism was kind of flattening me out. And one thing I always say about alcoholism, I feel like alcoholism stole my happy gene, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I remember I used to be happy way back when, and especially I would see other people being happy uh, uh, or joyous, and it really used to annoy me like because I wasn't happy and I recognized I hadn't been happy for quite some time. 
And so alcoholism really started to affect my ability to do my job. You know, I used to be very good at going into the CEO of an insurance company and explaining our product, my product, and why it was superior to the product they were currently using and mine was less expensive, so let's make a deal. And then we go out and get drunk and have dinner or, or whatever. I used to be good at that. But but age 27, 28, I'm sat in my sports car, paralyzed, unable to get out of the car to go to this meeting that I'd set up the day before. And so it was it was tricky. And I got away with a lot because I was the boss, but my brother was onto me. My brother's always somebody that's onto us. No matter how well we hide the game, mine was my brother. And he didn't understand what was going on, and nor could he know what was going on. Neither did I, you know. I wish I could have told him now, retrospectively, I wish I could have said, hey, uh, I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, or hey, I have all these resentments, or hey, I feel like I have a soul sickness that's eating me alive from the inside out. I wish I could have told him I had a threefold illness, <laughs> an allergy of the body. Now, my brother, funnily enough, John, he did think I was suffering from something. He thought I had lazy bastarditis, you know <laughs> what I mean? Be because, because I wasn't doing my job. I just wasn't showing up, especially on a Monday morning when I tore one out on the whole weekend. So, so funnily enough, eventually I got fired from that business. Oh, Only an alcoholic can get let go from a business that he started, you know, all those seven or eight, but we, I pulled it off. We, we were in, here's how it went down, a very quick story. We was, we was in this boardroom uh, director's meeting. There's four, four of us are directors at this point. We were a small shareholding company and I hated these things and I wasn't paying attention. And then he, then he said to me, he said, Darren, we've had a meeting before this meeting and we've decided to let you go. And I woke up and said, wait, what? What do you mean you can't? And I got angry because all my fears were playing out. I kind of knew this day was coming like, like we do. And, and I said, you can't, do, you can't do this. And he said, well, we have, and we've all signed this document to, to say so. And I got so mad, I kicked over the table and I went to give my brother a flying headbutt. <laughs> well, you know, I believe in clear communication, John, you know, and it was just one of those awful scenes that we've all had those moments where Darren's been found out, you know, my covers were pulled. He knew I had a drinking problem and he was pretty much telling everybody else. And it was the, it was an awful day. It was an awful day. Was Miss Manchester still in the, no, no, by the way, if we, was it literally Miss Manchester or is that just a term for uh, <laughs> a good looking doll, dolly bird? Yeah. But she was a beautiful woman and she was very well known in, in our part of town. And, you know, I, I, I screwed that up also. And, and yeah, that was a big moment of me being found out. And that was a, a part of the reason I, I end up uh, coming to America. Okay, so you get terminated, let go, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And did you do anything else? Like, um, what? So, what was the impetus for getting to America? Did it happen immediately? Did you stay in so, Manchester for a while? Yeah. So it, it's a yeah. The, so I when I got fired that day, it was a it was a miserable depressed day, most worst days of my life. And I had to leave the sports car there. 
They were going to cut me a crappy check. It was the worst time to exit the business, of course, financially speaking. And I remembered I walked home that night so dejected, but it was a Thursday afternoon. I had a rain. I don't know if anyone else's weekends were longer than their week. Mine were Thursday, <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, and I arranged to go out that night already. And uh, what happened is I went to the pub because what I need to do as a good alcoholic, I need to get ahead of the narrative, John. I need to change the story of what happened in that meeting room <clears throat> because I don't need anybody talking poorly about me. So I got to the bar before all my friends were, co were coming out and I had a couple of stiff drinks in me. And guess what happened? Woof, the old fierce determination to win came right back. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little loaded to the gills now. And here comes my friend Simon. Here comes my friend Dave. And as the, the friends start pouring into the pub, I got on my little pulpit and started to tell them all my version of events. I said, did you hear what happened today with my brother? My brother's a wanker, dude. I told them where to go. I told them to shove that job. I built this business up from my bedroom, don't you know? And ev anything I touch to turns to gold. And my friends are buying it. They're buying it because I'm full of bull I'm bullshitting them and they're buying it. And by this time I have a, an audience and I'm a couple of three, four drinks in and they're all listening to me. I've got the stage and the audience. And I said to them, yeah, <clears throat> I don't need anybody. I can do anything I put my mind to. I said, you know what I'm going to do, boys? When I was a student, I used to love traveling. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to America. I'm going to go traveling again. And I'm going to go to America and I'm going to become president or some shit. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> hey, apparently any fucker can become president over here. And I wasn't short of confidence. You know what I mean? So I think, I think the problem is the, is the shitty UK weather. You know, I think the problem is my brother. He's a wanker. I think the problem is my girlfriend, you know, because she keeps leaving me for stupid little things like my cheating on her and stuff, you know. But I didn't know, I didn't know somebody, what, I, what happened is somebody checks the problem onto a flight at Manchester International Airport and flew me all the way to LAX. <laughs> And and here I am. Did you and know I where came you were to, going? Like when, yeah, I, ca I, mean, I did came to America to yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I came to America to meet an uncle I'd never met before, who lives in Santa Barbara, and who owns an English pub in downtown uh, State Street. So there is a God. See, <laughs> it was a match made in heaven. So this guy I've never met before picks me up at LAX and drives us up the 101 North to to Santa Barbara. And he owns this bar and I'm so enamored with, with, I've never been to California or America at all before. And I'm so enamored that it's sunny all the time. I'm in his bar. So I'm making fast friends. I quickly, and I'm drunk every day for the two weeks, of course. And I realized the visa waiver I'd signed on the plane allows me to stay for 90 days. And so I, instead of staying for two weeks, I stay for 90 days. Then a friend of mine flies over from Manchester I buy an SUV and me and my friend travel the whole of America for five months. We do a 12,000 mile loop around the States of America, 32 States we visit and I'm drunk off my ass in every town, city and state. By the time we get back to Santa Barbara five months later, I have seven outstanding warrants <laughs> in five different States. <laughs> hey, that means we had a good time, right? We had a good time. Welcome to America. <laughs> yeah. 
my, my friend who's normal flies back to England. I'm here illegally at this point. Right. I have no money, no income. And so I become a drunk bartender in my uncle's pub. He has no idea what he's letting himself in for. So how how long is this before? Like, what, so you got sober in two thousand four. When did you actually get to Santa Barbara? Was that like I came here in in June two thousand? Oh, so you had four years of good of a good run. Oh yeah. Oh man. All right. So take me through that time. I guess is there anything else you want to say about your time? in Santa Barbara before you ended up coming into the meeting? Yeah, well, I, I was a drunk bartender for like 18 months hanging on by a thread. How I, how I didn't lose that job after my first shift, I'll never know. I was always the drunkest person in the bar and I'm the bartender. So <laughs> alcoholism. See, the, the, the three months of me being on vacation and drunk all the time wasn't a problem. The five months of a, the road trip of a lifetime wasn't a problem. Staying drunk for me isn't a problem. It's a problem for other people, of course. It's a problem for the authorities. It's a problem for spouses. And it's a problem for bosses. But it wasn't a problem for me. So my, my lack of responsibility at that stage of my drinking really masked my alcoholism. The true problem for any alcoholic is to face life sober. And so when I had to start bartending and I'm supposed to do it sober, it was very difficult and my anxiety's through the roof. So I'm hanging on by a thread for the whole 18 months of me bartending. Um, you know, and I lost, I ended up losing that job in 2002. And then I go on a, a two year death march. Wow. And so where were you staying this entire time? I was living in a, in a, pretty crappy house on the west side of town uh, three other bartending friends uh are uh, 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 living with me they're they're not f falling into the, you know they're not at the nadir of alcoholism they're just like heavy drinkers partiers but i'm taking it to a whole new level and as i lose that job kind of everybody wants pretty much nothing to do with me at that point are you communicating at this point with anybody back in manchester or girlfriend no. or brother or anybody no so they just kind of but like word is word is getting back to england that darren seems to seems to have a problem especially when i lost the job at the bar because my uncle would relay some information back to the uk so they're hearing through the filter system that there's something going on with darren okay all right, so you're still living in this uh, crappy little place, uh, and then you're getting closer to 2004 now. So was there anything in particular that prompted your entree into Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, I'll tell you this way. Here was a typical day for me. I hadn't seen anybody for, for months after. Like, I'm not a cute drunk. I'm not a functioning alcoholic. I'm a vodka-drinking maniac. And... uh you know, so my, my, my alcoholism really progressed where um, I'm drinking around the clock. So a, a typical day I would come to and it would be pitch black outside and I have no idea whether it's night or day. And I'd figure it out, oh my God, it's 5 a.m., you know, that darkest hour before the dawn. Now I have strong, horrible, warm vodka under my bed at this stage of my drinking, John, because I'll need it at first daylight, but I so desperately didn't want to drink because I knew what that meant. I could only tough it out for about 10 minutes, man. 10 minutes, 
because the mental and hellish torture was so bad. I'm hearing voices. I'm hearing my name. I've drank so much hard alcohol. I've done so many drugs. I've, I feel like I've ruined me wiring. And I'm operating at a level where it's like I've cracked my mind. I'm going to have a nervous mental breakdown any minute. I need to ingest something to dumb me down because I'm suicidal on awakening. So after about 10 minutes, now I am drinking from tall bottles of vodka. I always have four fingers left in the bottom of it because it's like a science project. <laughs> That's exactly what I'll need when I wake up. And I would pound that vodka down, not to become Superman anymore. You know, like back in the day in England, you put enough drink in me or maybe a line or something. And, I, and I'm like Superman. I'm like a mixture between James Bond, Dave Chappelle and Harry fucking Potter. You know what I mean? But now this, this vodka would, would dumb me down just enough where it takes the thought of suicide away. But, but here's the problem. I finished that vodka and it's not even 6 a.m. And here's the problem. I've just fed the beast and now the beast needs feeding. So I'd have to put on my smelly baggy clothing to go one block to Foodland liquor store to steal two big bottles of vodka. Mm -hmm. And I would come clinking off home. Now, you can't just go home and pound the vodka and pass out like you might want to. No, 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 no. It's like a science project. It is immensely important that first bottle I nurse it into the later afternoon. Because the second bottle has to get me into the evening saving enough because what I'm trying to do is get to 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, maybe even 11 o'clock at night. I'm trying to pass out and catch a good enough sleep to wake up and not have to drink like that ever again. And it says the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms. I drank like that for two more years of jails, institutions and death. And it was just a living hell mm. until 2004. Okay, so you've talked about when you first came into AA, you kind of walk in there with a vodka bottle and stuff like that. You're taking some pulls off of that bottle. Um, so is there anything you want to say about right before when you got into that meeting? Or do you want to take it now from when you came in and moving forward? Sure. Uh, in fact, I can I can tell you how I got sober because it's kind of a succinct story. Um, yeah, that last two years of drinking, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Dr. Bob calls his uh, frightful drinking. I was doing some frightful drinking morning, noon and night. So jails, institutions and death are the only three outcomes for an, an alcoholic of my type. I was going to jail <clears throat> for stupid little things like DUIs and drunken publics. I was going to institutions. I would wake up regularly in the drunk tank. I was being hospitalized a lot. And I finally ended up going to the lockdown psychiatric unit regularly. That had become normal for me too. So the third thing left was death. And death was close, but death was welcomed. You can't scare me or us with death at this stage of alcoholism. It's like, bring it on, dude. Bring it on. I'm ready. But alcoholism doesn't have the dignity to take us quickly. You know, it's going to mess with some of us for years, if not decades. I mean, my fear is not dying an alcoholic death. My fear is living an alcoholic life. One miserable day at a time. <clears throat> so here's how I got sober. I came to one morning and there was no vodka under my bed. And that had never, ever, ever happened to me before. And I took it as a sign that this is the day I'm going to kill myself. 
And I was fine with that. I tried to kill myself three months prior. Three months prior, I was maudlin drunk. It was midnight. My three roommates were downtown partying, having excluded me again, of course. And I remembered one of them as an arsenal of weapons in his bedroom. So I broke his bedroom door, jimmied the door, broke in, found all these weapons, all these assault rifles and all these guns. Now I'm English. I don't quite know what I'm doing with a gun. But I found the loaded revolver. I went stumbling into the living room, sat on the couch. I put it in my mouth. It was heavy, cold on my teeth. And I'm thinking, wait, do you, do you blow the back of your head off or do you shoot up through the roof of your mouth? And as I'm thinking this through, the thought came to me, Darren, it's midnight. If you pull the trigger right now, you'll definitely wake the neighbours up and I'm too polite for that shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I just throw the gun back in the room and finish the job. A month after that, I tried to kill myself. I found a big bottle of pills. Uh, this, this should have killed a goddamn elephant and I took the whole bottle of pills, washed it down with a whole bottle of vodka, but I, I came too. You know, some of us don't die. But today it was the day I'm going to kill myself. No vodka in my in room. I stay in the room for two hours thinking about it and I decide to throw myself off Santa Barbara's biggest bridge. And I, I went outside. Luckily, my car was there. That movie, Dude, Where's My Car? could have been filmed about me. I never could find my car. <laughs> the car was there. I drove 20 minutes up this mountain road, parked the car. I walked to the center of the bridge and I paused before jumping because I knew it was going to kill me mum. And in that pause, grace came in. Grace came in the form of a man in the rooms of Alcott's Anonymous who told me the truth. Because I used to share inappropriately in meetings that I'm going to kill myself. AA doesn't work. This is bullshit. And he pulled me off to the side one time after a meeting and said, listen, Darren, you might well kill yourself. And so what? You won't be the first and you won't be the last. But you can't say AA doesn't work because you haven't done shit around here. And I was getting mad because he's telling me the truth. And I said, I've been coming here for a year, old man. And he said, well, first of all, Darren, you should come sober. It works better. <laughs> <laughs> I had to concede that point. And then he said, and a drunk like you, you need to get a sponsor and work the steps. And I knew he was telling me the truth because that whole year I had two big secrets in the rooms of Alcott's Anonymous, John. One was... Uh, I didn't have a sponsor. And if I did, it was in name only. And the other one was I never was working any steps, but you lot were talking about doing the steps all the time. And so as I'm on this bridge, I, I, I conceded that. And I said to myself, I was angry, but I meant it. And I said, I'm going to go back to that AA bullshit and I'm going to work those stupid 12 steps. And when they don't work, I'm going to go and find that man. We're going to have a little chit chat, you know, I'll probably take him off the bridge with me. And so I, I know enough about my alcoholism at this stage of my drinking that I, I can't just come skipping into the rooms. I need to be once again medically detoxed and I need to go back to the lockdown psychiatric unit. And uh, so that's what I did. I, I jumped in my vehicle. I drove back down the mountain road. I went to Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital emergency room and I parked in my usual spot. <laughs> and I and I sideswiped the car next to me and ended up getting a DUI in the parking lot of the of the Cottage Hospital emergency room. There's two it's a, it's a funny quick story. There's two cops there. 
because uh, it's the emergency room, they'd heard the noise, they come over to me, I get out of the vehicle, it's about 11am now, sober as a judge, I said, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, that was my fault, I've got my ID, that's my vehicle, but I need to go into the hospital, I've got some health issues, and one cop goes behind me, and the other, the other cop comes right up to me, he's about to say something else, as he gets near to me, he goes, whoa, have you been drinking? <laughs> I must... I must reek of alcohol. I said, no, I have not been drinking. He said, well, you're doing some field sobriety tests. I do all his field sobriety tests perfectly for 25 minutes. He is pissed. <laughs> he looks at his colleague. His colleague goes like this. He said, you're doing some more. I do another 15 minutes. He then makes me blow into his breathalyzer and I blow a 0.32. <laughs> Listen. They cannot believe it, man. I am chit-chatting as normal with them as I am now. They're like, you should be in a coma right now. You know, like, what is going on? I said, listen, I promise you, I haven't had a drink. I hadn't even had a drink yet. Like, I'm waking up at a point three two, and then I'm drinking me two big bottles of vodka. So, you know, they, they arrest me, of course, but I plead my case and they don't take me to jail. They take me to the local police station because I said, I've got to go to the lockdown psychiatry unit. I got to get back into AA and something mir miracle starts to happen when I start to use the language of Alcott's Anonymous. And I remember clearly I'm, I'm handcuffed in the back of the squad car and they're enamored with the situation. They can't believe what's going on. And as we're driving to the police station, they radio ahead to their colleagues and they say, hey, we've got this Irishman and he blew a point three. I said, I'm English, you <laughs> moron. <laughs> and they, they take me to the police station. They fingerprint me. I swear, John, everybody in that police station came to take a look at me and chit chat with me because I blew, I blew such high numbers and I'm just, you know, chatting away. And then after a couple of hours, somebody they know and trust comes and picks me up and takes me back to the lockdown psychiatric unit one more time. But that's the end of the drinking story. Cause, but it's like, so what though? They're going to they're gonna take me to this place I've been four times before and I got drunk twice on the way home. What's going to be different? The, the, the difference is I'd, I'd hit bottom. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to kind of a post-AA, um, excuse me, uh, uh, you know, after you got sober. Take me through, so you've obviously, you've been sober since 2004. I'm sure you've had some highlights and some lowlights and, you know, you're still there in Santa Barbara. Did you end up becoming a citizen? Did you get your visa extended? What? I mean, am I going to get you arrested by putting this out in the air? What's, what's no. going on with you? <laughs> No, yeah, I finally got sober in 04. I came out of the lockdown psychiatry unit. I went to a very powerful men's stag, picked a very serious sponsor, and he and he took me through the steps. Maybe in a, in a, in a few minutes I can explain that in, a, in less than five minutes. But yeah, I got sober. I got married a year into sobriety in 2005. I, got, I met someone fairly early on, and she was a normie gal. Uh, we got married in 2005 and we remained married for 15 years. Uh, we got, I got divorced three years ago. Uh, so I met her in 2005. I got my dream job in 2006. I work for Santa Barbara City College. I'm a full-time faculty, tenured faculty professor at Santa Barbara City College. Really? What do you teach? Uh, if I, my main role is I'm a disability counselor, but if I do teach, I'm el eligible to teach psychology 
and our drug and alcohol classes are a personal development class. Gotcha. Yeah. So you went from being a, a chief marketing officer uh, and to coming over here to America and basically being in the counseling field and mm -hmm. working in that arena. That is fantastic. So mm -hmm. which do you like yeah. better? I, funnily enough, I always thought I'll never be able to match the feeling of what it felt like to be an entrepreneur because that's a pretty good buzz. Yeah. But I tell you now to have a, uh, you know, structured, full-time, brilliant, well-paid position with a lot of vacation being in the educational industry is amazing. I, I love it. It's the, it's, you know, early on in my marriage, here's a funny thing that she said to me, like, I was trying to become an entrepreneur again. I had an idea for a couple of businesses. She had a regular job and I'm working in a shitty part-time hotel job, you know, resting by the pool, mostly taking phone calls, but trying to work on an entrepreneurial website idea. And about a year into the marriage, she came home to me and said one of the most spiritual things anyone's ever said to me. She said, get a real job, you lazy bastard. <laughs> I said, excuse me, what? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm I'm trying to establish this website. And I wasn't really. You know, she'd come she'd come home from work exhausted to find me tanning at the hotel pool <laughs> making phone calls. And so that's what prompted me to apply for this. Um you know, when I got married, I got a I got a visa, I got a green card. And three years into my green card, I applied for citizenship. So I've been a citizen for like 15 or 17 years now. And uh, and then I applied for this full-time job in Santa Barbara City College. And I went back to school. I already had a degree from England, but I went back and got two different master's degrees in sobriety. Wow. Good for you. Very yeah, cool. That was, Very thank cool. Thank you. So, <clears throat> um, so if you were to... Obviously, you've had a lot of ups and downs, and it's a great story. If there's a lot of people out there that are listening that have either thought about Alcoholics Anonymous, or they started about, or they've thought about some twelve step program, but they've just not made that 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 push yet. Uh, and, and, and a lot of times that's why they listen to this to try to figure out, you know, what is going on within those rooms? Uh, there are other people mm -hmm. who are just getting started. Uh, and if you were to kind of, uh, sum up everything we've talked about and kind of put a bow on it and say, mm -hmm. this is what <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous has meant to me. Can you, can you do that for me? Yeah, if I may tell a, a story that might last a few minutes, if that's yeah, okay, yeah, <clears throat> because it's very meaningful me. Because when I came into the rooms, I thought AA is going to be bullshit and boring, of course, but it's not. It's the most amazing soap opera you've ever been involved in. And I thought my my getting sober is going to be a really long slog because I've been so such a bad person out there for so long. I don't deserve anything else other than it being this long, slow, horrible slog to sobriety. And it wasn't like that. So here's what I want people to know is that you can turn things around very quickly in Alcott's Anonymous. It is amazing. You can draw it out as long as you want. But here's what happened to me. I got out of the lockdown psychiatric unit on a Wednesday afternoon. I didn't take a drink that day, which is an absolute goddamn miracle. 
<clears throat> I went to a very powerful men's stag meeting called the Junkyard Dogs. There were 80 men outside this meeting hall, smoking fags, drinking coffee, having a good time. I went straight up to Mike. I said, Mike, I just got out again today from the lockdown psychiatric unit. I said, I'm going to drink tonight, man. You know it. I know it. What do I need to do? And he looked at me and said, holy shit, Darren, are you sober right now? He'd barely seen me sober that whole year. I said, yeah. He said, let's get into action, man. Let's do a third step prayer right now. Normally we do some reading, maybe the 60 pages of the ABCs. And I said to him, what do you mean, Mike? I don't pray, John. I don't believe in God. I hate religion. I said, what do you mean, Mike? You want to pray in front of these 80 men? And he said, yeah. And I said, hmm. Okay. I said, okay, because the no had been beaten out of me. You know, Darren wasn't too cool for school anymore. Darren was about to conform to the process. So we hit our knees and we did a third step prayer. We went into that meeting. I went home from that meeting and I wrote 100 names on my resentment inventory. 100. I passed out. I came to at 5 a.m. shaking and baking still. I wrote 100 more names and I was going to start drinking. It was 6 a.m. Just about 6 a.m. I called this man. He answered the phone, gave me my next column and saved my life. And I called him 12 times that day to finish all three inventories. I went to his house the next day and we did my fifth step. Took us three and a half hours. As he's sending me home for my hour of review, he gave me a big hug and said, Darren, this is amazing. This has never happened to me before. I said, I'm glad you feel good, Mike. I feel like shit, dude. <laughs> he's all, don't worry, trust in the process. The next day we did steps, <clears throat> excuse me, six and seven. Step six and seven, like, I don't know what step six and seven were. Nobody knows what step six and seven are, but I had enough willingness and humility and I desperately wanted to move on. And so the next day we did step eight. I had to just transfer my list from my four step. I already had my list. It was just annoying that I transferred it onto a new list and I added to my list. On my fourth or fifth day of sobriety, I went around Santa Barbara and made 21 amends all over town. I went into all the bars I got 86 from. I went into my bar, all the customers I came across, all the stores. 21 amends and I was lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. I was rocketed into a fourth dimension i couldn't believe my little english heart filled up so much i thought it was going to burst and everything made sense john everything made sense i'm like oh my god this is why people are saying they're a grateful recovered alcoholic this is why you guys are sponsoring people and doing wonderful podcasts and wanting to give back you must have experienced a full heart i'm like oh shit this is what you're calling god and I understood because I saw, I felt, I believed. <clears throat> I felt so good. The next morning, I went to Foodland Liquor Store and asked to speak to the manager. And I said, listen, sir, I'll, I'm a really bad drunk. I've been really bad drinker for, for years. I live less than one block away from your store and I've been stealing vodka from your store for well over a year. I said, I'll never steal from you or anyone else ever again. I said, look, it's Friday. I just started work for the first time in years, two days ago. There's 
I'll be back every Friday with $25 until I've paid that whole amount off and any interest you determine. I said, is there anything else I can do to make this right? And he looked at me and he said, wow. And I looked back at him and said, wow. <laughs> and I floated off to make some more financial amends because I couldn't believe how good it felt to give you your money back. Yeah. And I said to my sponsor, what's next, man? This is amazing. And he said, steps 10 and 11. And, I, and this, this won't take long at all. He said, 10 and 11. I said, I said, what's that? He said, yeah, step 10, I'll show you what to do right here, right now for step 10 to postpone the punishment of. I'll show you what to do in 11, what to do in the morning, what to do at night. Sandwich the day. Two minutes of meditation in the morning. You're already praying your little English ass off. We'll add some meditation. Two minutes to review your day at night. And he already knew I was a recovered alcoholic. Five, six days into it. And I'm like, two minutes, two minutes. What do you mean? He said, yeah, if you do all these things, Darren, for one day at a time, you can stay sober the rest of your life. And I said, I am in. Dude, I had gone from suicidal on awakening for the past two plus years to having a full heart and, and having gratitude. I said, I am in. Now, listen, John, it's not like I enjoy meditation, but I can't skip anything. You know, people, you can't skip a fifth step because you have ADHD, right? You can't skip a ninth step because you don't feel like doing it. I don't know when it became fucking cool to not do an 11 step meditation. Luckily, my sponsor knew I was the worst drunk he's ever met. And he knew I needed the whole deal. I need to work what I call the guaranteed version of sobriety. So even though I don't like meditation, it's taken me, it's taken me 19 and a half years to go from two minutes meditation to 10 minutes meditation. 19 and a half years. But God loves him a little trier. God loves him a little fucking trier. And my God is cool, John. My God is up there actually laughing his bearded ass off at me down there in my bedroom doing my shitty prayer meditation. He's laughing his ass off going, look at that little English fuck down there. Look at that little English wanker doing his shitty prayer meditation. But then he says, you know what? You know what? He goes, check. Give that little fuck another day of sobriety. <laughs> That's how cool my God is. He doesn't care I'm a potty mouth man from Manchester. He cares about my actions and my helping others, which I do relentlessly. I'm telling you, steps 10 and 11 are the keys to the kingdom. Steps 10 and 11 are so simple, you won't do it. And isn't that the truth for most alcoholics? Only, only an alcoholic will burn his life to the ground come, to come running to a 12-step program just to resist the 12 steps. You know, what, what is wrong with us? Well, I guess we're alcoholic, but, but I'm all in and I've been all in ever since that day. Oh, I love it. I love it. All in. Uh, this has been so good. Um, and uh, one of the things I was thinking about while you were telling your story is uh, just from watching uh, Ted Lasso, they really do use the word wanker over there. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great, it's my favorite word, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Darren. I'm going to wrap it up here with page 164 from the big book. 
It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Darren P., as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Darren, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, John. What a pleasure. Nice to meet you. Friends for life now. Yeah, I got it, brother. Man, don't you love that guy? Thank you, Mr. Darren P. Uh, he was absolutely fantastic. And uh, if you have any comments for Darren or anybody else, any of our other guests, or if you just want to say hello, what happened to my words there? That, that was really strange. But nonetheless, uh, just email me at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. And if you're not following us on la Instagram, we're at soberspeak, all one word. Go on there and give us a, mm, a look or a, oh, a follow, a follow. That's what I, that's the word I was looking for. And if you're not in the soup, secret Facebook group, go ahead and open up your Facebook application, either on your desktop or wait, actually any device that you have, and uh, look up the words uh, Sober Speak Secret Group and ask for admission on into that group and we will get you on in. All right, now on folks to a little bit of listener feedback. Michael writes in, and Michael says, Hey, John, this is your second favorite person from Augustine, only second to JD. Well, I don't know. You guys are tied. I, to me, you're right up there uh, in, you know, uh, at, at, at 1 and 1A or whatever. You know what I'm saying. You're, you're tied for first. And uh, anyway, uh, Michael says, Would the Sober Speak Live event, uh, which featured Cliff G. AA and Lori G. Allenon, the family afterward. Will that be available for those who could not hear it? In other words, you're saying he couldn't come into the Zoom meeting or be here live. Uh, and Michael says, I love Cliff as he has the same profession as myself. And Lori spoke at the Florida State Convention last summer. And my wife loved her as an Al-Anon speaker. I uh, would really love to hear them. Well, guess what? You, Michael, are in luck. I'm in the middle of editing some of those uh, episodes right now. Where I'm, I'm going to release some. It'll probably be like one a month or so for, I don't know, four or five months, something like that. But I'll have that all out uh, eventually. And uh, I'm glad that you're looking forward to that. So am I. Crystal. DMs on la Instagram. She says, hi, John. I'm up to, oh, yes, I remember Crystal. She She's starting at the beginning and moving forward, going back to episode one and coming forward. And she says, I'm up to the John W. episode. Wow, that's been a while back. She says, the principles of AA, and I'm laughing at your feedback about your laugh. I just want to say that your laugh is fabulous and lightens up my day is so contagious and I love it. Well, thank you, Crystal. Not everyone agrees, but I appreciate you writing in and this just goes to show you that people have been complaining about my laugh for ever since the beginning because that, 
<laughs> that's a while ago, and I think I got something a couple of weeks ago just telling me to uh, simmer down, simmer down, John M., simmer down. Anyway, Meyer writes in, and Meyer sa- Maya says uh, the uh, subject matter is no matter what. And she says, Dear John, a couple of weeks ago, I sent you an email about my daddy. I remember, Maya. She says, he passed away on Monday. I'm sorry to hear that, Maya. I am. She says, I am heartbroken. I always thought that losing my daddy or my baby brother was going to be the one event that took me out, but I'm still sober, closer than ever to my higher power and allowing myself to be held by my AA family. Good for you, Maya. She says, he left this world forehead to forehead with my brother my head tucked against his neck and both of our arms wrapped around him. Wow. The last words he heard were my brother and I reminding him that he wasn't alone and that we would take care of mama and us expressing our love and gratitude for everything he gave us in life. He died quickly and peacefully. I was sober when he passed, and I'm still sober today. My home group has engulfed me in love. This program has helped me to stay in gratitude rather than regrets. My higher power arranged it so that I got to spend 16 plus hours a day at his bedside the whole 13 days he was in the hospital. I was gifted to talk to him, read from his favorite book, hear stories about his life that I hadn't heard before, and to record his voice. He was so proud of my sobriety and the way I'm working my program. That's really cool, Maya, really cool. She said, we listened to a few episodes of your podcast together. (laughs) And hearing him laugh at Reno John filled my heart. As always, I am so grateful to you and your guest, Maya. Wow, Maya, I never thought in a million years that somebody would be playing my silly little episodes uh, on their father's deathbed. That is a uh, an honor. God bless you. As you know, I sent that on to Reno John. I wanted him to see that as well. And um, prayers are with you. God bless you and your family, uh, especially your brother there. It seems like you're very close to him. And uh, keep me posted, Maya. Uh, and I'm so glad that you have the gift. You have the gift of being able to be with your father as he passed on to another life. God bless you. John writes in J-O-N, not J-O-H-N like me. And he says, hey, J-O-H-N, I saw your post in the Super Secret Facebook group, and it really helped me to reflect in this moment. Thanks for posting that question. There was a, I posted a question in the Super Secret Facebook group a couple of weeks ago, a couple, three weeks ago. I can't even remember now. I'm, you know, I, I need to read some of those responses, but I am ill prepared right now to do that. But my question was, what have you learned 
over the past several months or year, I can't even remember if I even put a time limit in, a time limit in there, uh, about sobriety and recovery. And I posted some of my thoughts, what I had learned, and everyone was a little different, right? We're all on our own journey. And they posted oh, so many cool things. And um, anyway, he says, John says, it's been a while since, it's been a bit since I wrote you. I took my one-year chip At the end of December. Very cool, John. Pretty cool celebration, which really reminded me that God is doing for me what I could not do for myself. I understand that, John. He says, I also want to thank you for your podcast, as it has played a huge part in my journey by introducing me to so many different speakers, perspectives, and explanations of the work. After finishing up all of your episodes, I found myself seeking more and more material from various guests of yours, which sent me down the rabbit trail of finding even more talks and workshops. Truly invaluable. Thank you. That's great. You're seeking. You're seeking, John, and that's what we all need to be as seekers. And uh, he says, 2024 has been off to a good start, although, as I touched on in my response to your post in the in the Facebook group, that there has been also some lessons to be learned. This is good, though, because this is how we grow. Yeah, some days I get tired of growing, <laughs> but I completely understand. Uh, John says, I was invited to speak at a month-end speaker meeting in the city I work in last week. That was a really cool experience. I was super nervous going into it and had fears such as, will I speak well? Will I fill the time? And generally, will will I be good enough? Which is something that I've always had trouble dealing with. In the end, I just spent time with God beforehand, and once I started, I believe He moved me in the direction I was to go, and it turned it turned out to be a great experience all around. I hope your 2024 is off to a good start as well, John, and you are trusting God with whatever is going on in your life. It has sparked you to start that topic on the Sober Speak group. Yes, that's exactly what went on. May you continue to walk in the spirit of the light, John D. P.S. Another person I would love uh, to hear on your pod as if it was ever something good was to set up Dave F. So I don't know Dave F. Um, John gave me some information on Dave F. I have to try to contact him best I can, uh, maybe find some, uh, 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 tapes or whatever you want to call it uh, of his out on the interwebs and, uh, see what I can do. But thank you so much, John, for the suggestion. Rob writes in, Rob says, morning, John. Well, good morning to you, Mr. Rob. He says, I heard about Sober Speak from one of my sponsees that uses the phone applications and such more than I do. I love how you phrase that. He says, I use Spotify. And so I looked it up and I was pleased to find some great content. <clears throat> Excuse me. Great content. It looks like my voice is trying to go out here. Hopefully I get through this. He says, thanks for the years of service and the treasure trove of experience, strength, and hope that you have collected from the fellowship. Sorry, sorry, sorry. My sobriety date is April 17th, 1996, and I got sober at Clean Air North Group in Addison, Texas. 
I am so sorry, folks. He says, I was single and childless and 32 years old. By the way, I have been to Clean Air North in Addison many, many, many times. Uh, and he says, I was blessed with a wife in 1999 now over, and now have two daughters, 14 and 17. And we have lived in Denton and we have lived in Denton, Texas now for over 22 years. Last year, I, I officially switched my home group from Clean Air North to the Show Me group in Denton. I've been there too. <clears throat> This is all local stuff here in Texas, for those of you wondering. He says, I have been involved over over the years in many forms of service, but currently serve as the secretary for the Show Me Group. I have also been very active in the church community over the years, and I have been able to serve in both... Uh, both the church and in AA because of my involvement in both. Uh and he says, each provides me with wisdom and experience to be able to bring hope to those in both communities. This last year, I have been increasingly concerned with the gap between AA and the church. The church is very well equipped with spiritual truths and principles to support a vibrant and effective way of life, but often lacks the toolkit to get people started on the path to recovery. In essence, the church doesn't always do a good job of meeting people where they are and instead focuses on what the new person should believe uh, instead of focusing on what they do believe as a starting point. On the other hand, AA is well-equipped with, with frequent meetings and available fellowship and a spiritual toolkit that really works to get someone sober and free from their obsession with alcohol, but it's a hit or miss when it comes to a person experiencing a, quote, loving and powerful hand of God, unquote, or the fourth dimension of existence, so to speak. Many in AA are sober and productive and contributing members of society, but still have some of the old prejudices with, with respect to religion or the church, especially Christians who are so often perceived as uh, hypocritical. All of this adds up to a gap. Church members are not open to AA because the fellowship of AA has allowed an improper definition of God as we understand him to be proliferated, and so it is perceived by the church leadership as heretical. AA members are not open to the church because they see hypocrisy of its members, and they have found freedom outside the church and therefore discount the value of the church to their growth as a spiritual being. I can say that at my core, my calling is to those people that may never set foot in church or may never set foot in AA meeting, but they still need the truth, principles, fellowship, and toolkit that has been so freely given to me. I am exploring ways to better fill this gap, and I have others around me that are also seeing that this is a huge opportunity and need uh, and need in the culture that we live in. I know this is a lot to read and digest, but who better to share with them one who speaks from many around the country, not just around the country, around the world. Uh, Rob, he says, may you and yours be blessed and make it a great day. Very truly yours, Rob. Well, God bless you, Rob. Thank you for writing. Uh, obviously, you've given this uh, some, some uh, you've, you've thought this out well, and I appreciate your viewpoint. All right, everybody. That <clears throat> is another 
episode of Sober Speak in the can, as they say. May God bless you and keep you until then. The next time I see you, I take this one week at a time. I hope to be back next week and keep coming back. It works if you work it. Uh, Love you guys. Bye-bye.